Well, would you take your Bibles, please, and your sermon note sheets? Uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation, last book of the New Testament, chapter 3. We want to finish our study of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation, chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 1, in a vision from God, the Apostle John showed us Jesus in his eternal glorified state, present among his churches, walking amongst the lampstands, evaluating the church's strengths and weaknesses, writing to each a letter that expresses Jesus' love and concern for those churches. The seven letters are in chapters 2 and 3, and we'd studied all except the last one, which is today. And we've noticed this word repent so often in the text. We know how an individual confesses sin and turns away from wrong and changes his path, but how does a church repent? Yet we read it again and again and again to these congregations. Repent, change your mind, turn around, take a godly direction. So these churches, in just a quick review this morning, Ephesus was first. It's actually the church of the seven that we know the most about. But in Revelation 2, they are a forgetful church. Remember, they've forgotten their first love. And Jesus says, repent, turn that around. Then we went to Smyrna, the suffering church, a persecuted church. Jesus' challenge to them is hold on in these hard times. But interestingly, no word of criticism for Smyrna, nothing from which they need to repent. Then we went to Pergamum. The compromising church. One of the commentators said they welcomed the attitudes and values of the world right into their church. And Jesus calls them to turn around and repent. Then to Thyatira, the tolerant church. Tolerant not in a positive sense. They tolerated false doctrine in their church. They tolerated sexual immorality right within the membership of their congregation. It was kind of a chameleon church blending in with the evil in the society around them. They thought you can be a Christian and live any old way you want, which is not the truth. Jesus is hard on them. Repent, he says. Then was the church of Sardis, the slumbering church, a church in a coma. You remember that? Wake up, Jesus tells them. Turn that around. Wake up. Repent. Last time was the Philadelphia church, the enduring church that Jesus is going to bless with huge opportunities, open doors. He congratulates them. No word of repent there. No word of straighten this out. Today we're going to deal with the Laodicea church. But listen, out of all seven churches, only two of them needed to hear no word of repent from Jesus. Only two of them didn't hear. You got to repent. Most churches, 
I would suggest to you this morning, not only in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, most churches in today's world have stuff that if they were really listening to the Lord, they need to repent. They need to confess their wrong and let Jesus again be Lord of their church. We're studying these texts because we are asking, what would Jesus say to Lakewood Church? What would he say to our church? And it's possible that in the painful stuff we've had happen at Lakewood, Jesus is behind it saying, there's something you need to make right. Something Lakewood, its pastors, its leaders, its congregation, something we need to repent from and change direction and make it right. So today, the last of the churches, Laodicea, and this is such a fascinating letter. Can you imagine if you were a church member in Laodicea, and they're reading Revelation to you, and you're hearing the letters to all of these churches, you'd think your anxiety might be increasing as you come to your letter. What would Jesus say about us? But here's the deal. The problem at Laodicea was that they probably weren't concerned at all. They had such a high view of themselves, they were probably waiting for their pat on the back, a pat on the back that doesn't come. Here's the deal with this letter. It's perhaps the harshest letter to any of the churches, but I would say to you that it's also probably the letter where we best see Jesus heart of yearning and concern, his passionate love in this letter, his appeal to them. What do we know about the city of Laodicea? Well, the city in its day was known for four things. Wealth, number one. They were rich. They were so rich, in fact, that Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells about an earthquake that devastated their city in 60 AD, right about the time of this letter, and when the Roman government offered financial aid to the city to rebuild the city, the city fathers refused it. Their wealth was over the top. How did they become so wealthy? Well, two industries dominated in the city. First, it was a famous medical center and medical school. They produced a famous ointment that in that day was known all over the empire for its relief of eye infections and ear infections. A wealthy medical city. Think Rochester, Minnesota. Did you know that per capita, Rochester is the wealthiest city in our state? But Laodicea has also another reason for their wealth. They are famous for their soft, silky, black wool. They raised a special breed of black sheep, and from their wool, they made black togas. And guess who wore black togas? Only the wealthy. Only the wealthy. Think Ralph Lauren. Think Gucci. Think Paris. Understand why they had wealth? 
there was only one thing they didn't have. They didn't have good water. The drinking water was polluted. So they needed to bring water from another source. And, of course, the Roman engineers had a solution for that. They were famous for their aqueducts. Uh, uh, and uh, so they built an aqueduct and brought hot water from sulfur hot springs at Heropolis, six miles away. And they actually also built stone pipes drilled out from stone, sealed with cement to bring cold water from the cold springs of Colossae. Here's the problem. The hot water in the aqueducts flowed for six miles, and by the time it got to Laodicea, it was only slightly warm, and the sulfur content made it stink like rotten eggs. And the cold water had a similar problem. These stone pipes were part laid in the ground and part laid on top of the ground, over the surface of the ground. Here's a picture. Uh, you can even see the calcium buildup. Uh, that, that, by the way, is what that round is all about. That's the calcium buildup across those years. So it was minerally, in a bad-tasting way also, Keep that in mind as we study this passage. So the church in Laodicea receives the book of Revelation written by the Apostle John, and they are reading the messages to all those nearby churches, and can you see them? They are just wondering, waiting for their congratulations. But listen, they're not taking it too seriously, because in their mind they're saying, we got a great church we got a wonderful church. We're well-to-do. It feels like God has blessed us. We're really better than those other churches. When it gets to us, a pat on the back, right? Well, listen to what comes. Here's the text. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Actually, the word in the original means vomit. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from, from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me to the one who is victorious I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with with my father on his throne whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the churches wow uh, here's a letter that would cause some heartburn don't you think did the Lord save the most problematic church for last? This must have been hard to hear. But don't overlook Jesus' heart. 
He wants them. He desires them. He loves them. If you can see underneath the hard words, you'll capture his compassion and his affection. I was interim pastor in Thief River Falls uh, Evangelical Free Church uh, about uh, um, two years ago. And uh, it was Thursday on that week. And my associate pastor, CE director, asked, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I said, Revelation 3, Church of Laodicea. And he said, oh, you're not going to do that to us, are you? Uh, this is a hard word. But he had only heard that text preached as a pulpit scolding. It is a hard word. But let's not miss how much Jesus pleads and calls to the church. He wants their love. He wants their closeness. He wants our love. He wants our closeness. Let's work through the pattern and the template that we've seen through the letters. First, the salutation, the words of the amen, the one who is the last word, the faithful and true witness, the one who defines reality, the one who knows it and tells it like it really is, the ruler of God's creation. No question, these are the words of Jesus, Lord of all the churches. You might have a high opinion of yourself, Laodicea, but Jesus says, remember who I am. And if you're waiting for a positive word, a congratulation of, of approval, you need to hear this word. Now, what about some constructive criticism because there aren't any congratulations here. Constructive criticism, Jesus has some things to say. A challenge for both their actions and their attitudes. Your deeds are not so hot, not so cool. Jesus is not impressed. I wish you were one or the other. Like water that's in your pipes, to me, you are so lukewarm, it actually nauseates me. How'd you like to get a letter like this? God says, I can do something with people who are passionate for me, hot. I can deal with people who are opposed to me, cold. But you, First Church Laodicea, you're lukewarm. You're passive rather than passionate. You're involved, but we're not intimate. This is not what I have for you. And here's your attitude problem. You imagine that your wealth and status signals to you that God has blessed you and that you're his favorites. One of my commentaries suggested that blessing blinds. Blessing can blind us to our need. How about you? When things are going well in your life, how much do you need God? I, I know when things are going well in my life, I'm not drawing close to God like I do when things are not going well. Blessing blinds. Laodicea, you think you're on top. But here's how Jesus sees you. Instead of respectable, really, you're pitiful. Instead of wealthy, you're really poor. The eye salve that you produce, well, really, you're blind. 
and those fancy black togas you wear, fancy dress, I see you stripped and naked. You think you've got it made? You're a mess. What's all that about? They have so bought into the values and the attitudes of the culture around them that they're doing well by worldly standards. They have no idea how Jesus, the Lord of the church, the master of the church, the redeemer of the church, they have no idea how he sees them. It's possible for a church to see itself so differently from how Jesus sees. And we've said it in this series throughout. We all have opinions about churches, don't we? We have opinions about our church. But what matters is Jesus' opinion. Here's Jesus' critical counsel. Buy pure gold, fire refined gold, so that you can really become rich. Remember how Jesus spoke about the church in Smyrna? I know your poverty. You're really rich. They were poor by human standards, but spiritually rich, rich toward God. Laodicea thinks they're rich, but spiritually they're poor. Jesus is saying, even if you have to be materially poor, you'd better be rich toward God. White clothes, a symbol of purity to cover your shame, salve to heal your eyes so that you're spiritually seeing and insightful. They've been so blind. And then these difficult words that we'd rather overlook, but it's a truth that we see throughout Scripture. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest, take me seriously, says Jesus. With all your heart, repent. There's that word again. Repent. To five of the seven churches, you got to turn around. You got to change your direction. You've been going wrong. Make it right. Those are words we'd rather avoid. But next are the words we love to hear. This verse that we've heard so often, you've heard it quoted to people who need salvation. Such a sweet verse. But really, it's Jesus' appeal to a church where he's kind of on the outside looking in. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus says, I'm on the outside of my own church looking in. I want closeness with you. I so desire fellowship and intimacy. I want to be involved with you, engaged with you. That's what that eating symbolism is all about. Greeks and Jews, they didn't eat with just anybody. They didn't have, you know, a, a lunch counter that you go in and sit down next to somebody you don't even know. They didn't eat with people they didn't trust and didn't know. I think every one of us knows the feeling of wanting to be on the inside but being kept on the outside. wasn't too long ago I was counseling with a woman who said, 
to my own family, I feel like an outsider. That's so painful. And that's what Jesus says. These are people I love, and you're keeping me on the outside. I'm on the outside, but I'm knocking. I'm knocking. Please, let me in. I want to connect with you and love you. And then the words, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Have you noticed how often this theme of victory has been here in these words, in the letters to the churches? Victory, to be an overcomer. How does that fit with repent? Listen, the way most Christians today live, we just fit in with the culture around us. We fit in with the values and the, the values and the belief system and the morals of our world. And even the thermometer that we evaluate our spirituality with is corrupt. If I'm wealthy, that means I'm being blessed, right? Jesus calls us to a life bent toward his values, his truth, his principles. Repent, turn away, change your mind, return to the Lord. Repentance brings a turnaround, and the turn includes the return of his favor and his honor. The greatest victory is over our own inner attitudes. Do we have ears to hear this? It's challenging. It's uncomfortable. Even a bit painful. But are we listening to what the Spirit says to the churches? Are we listening to what Jesus would say to our church? Quickly, before we come to communion, a few applications. Spiritual warmness, lukewarmness, is totally distasteful, distasteful to the Lord. To be casual and flippant and insincere risks God's great displeasure. I want to be white hot for the Lord, don't you? I want to be zealous for my Savior. I want to go all the way with Jesus, how about you? Can I hear an amen? But notice also our capacity for self-deception. To believe something is true because we want it to be true does not make it true. We can fool ourselves into believing we have God's approval when we're far from that reality. And that's true not just for individuals, but that can characterize a whole congregation. And that self-deception can push Jesus to the margins of our fellowship and push him even out the door of a church. In Ken Quick's book, The Eighth Letter, 
he challenges us to ask the Lord to help us see our church as he sees it and to hear not our own opinion, but to hear his assessment. And then he says, you may discover that your church has inherited some futile and empty patterns and ways of life without being aware of it. And oh, please, hear Jesus longing and yearning to be close, to love us and help us and to enjoy our fellowship. If he's outside the door, he's knocking and he's pleading. He's so wanting us to know his love and welcome him in. Jesus loves his congregations and that includes us. And finally, notice those words, those whom I love, I correct and discipline. We know that as individuals. <laughs> James, the book of James, the book of Hebrews, these words are replete in Scripture. Could it be that pain, shocking disappointment, grief, loss, even frustration and even disagreement itself could be the Lord's loving rebuke, imploring us to return to the path he desires us to walk. Let me share with you in concluding this final quote from Earl Palmer. This letter is both the sternest of the letters and the most tender. Jesus assures this church of their belovedness. He's not scolding them. He's fighting with them, throwing water in their faces, challenging his beloved children because they mean so much to him. He cannot simply stand by and watch their downward spiral. So do you hear his love? I'm knocking. I'm knocking. I'm knocking. Let's pray. Dear Savior, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. We want to pray according to your will, Lord Jesus. And we want to pray as a church, together with one another, that you would make us what you desire us to be. Lord, if there's correction that we need, please, please show us. If in any way we have pushed you to the margins of our fellowship, rebuke us and correct us because we want nothing more than we want closeness with you. 
We're your church. We're your people. We want your evaluation and opinion to be what matters around here. So, Lord, we turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.